So we just finished a 13-part series in the book of James entitled, How Then Shall We Live? In the next three Sundays, we're going to have a, a mini-series here with, with three selected psalms. And, and you may have seen in, in your bulletin this morning that this series will be called, How Then Shall We Worship? And this will, Lord willing, dovetail uh, what we've been going through in the book of James. And, and as we look at this word worship, just uh, as a word of, of preface, that how we live and how we worship, living as believers and worshiping goes hand in hand. I'm reminded of Romans 12.1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so when we consider from the book of Psalms how to more faithfully worship God, we consider how to more faithfully worship God with our lives. And that's the encouragement we re- receive from the book of Psalms. I-, I love the book of Psalms, which I'm sure most, if not all of you, do as well. There's nothing like waking up early in the morning with a cup of coffee in the wintertime, maybe a fire's going and, and opening up your, your Bible to the book of Psalms. There's something very sweet and worshipful that we receive from the book of Psalms. And it's important as, as we consider how the Psalms have been collected, has, have they've been, how the 150 chapters of the Psalms have been formulated together, it's important to understand what the book of Psalms is about, why it was written in, in I'll share it this way, that the Psalms were written to show how the righteous, that is believers, worship God in this world amidst sin and suffering as they await the coming kingdom. Some some Psalms are considered praise Psalms, but just pure exaltation of God, of his character. Other Psalms are, are laments. They have a sadder tone to them. Other psalms are messianic in nature. Some are imprecatory. But there's one common thread through psalms. And that is how the psalmist works through difficulties in his life. A typical structure of this, you'll see, you'll see an exaltation of God's character. Oftentimes there's, there's a problem that's described. There's a suffering that's happening. And then there's a response to that problem. A plea or a cry for help. And that follows with a statement of God's character and often a statement of God's deliverance. And so much of the Psalms revolves around the question of how do we worship God in this world amidst, amidst suffering, amidst persecution, amidst sin, the sin of others, but also our very own sin as we await the world that is to come. That is, as we await the coming kingdom that is not here yet. And in Psalm 12, the question is asked, how do I worship God when I'm surrounded, influenced, and even attacked by false, devouring, wicked tongues? And what we'll see this morning is that the answer is one of hope. Hope that God keeps us safe from the storm of affliction. 
The answer is one of obedience that by God's grace, we might submit our words to the authority of God's pure, perfect word. And the answer is one of rest, knowing that we are eternally secure as set apart for his kingdom, that we will not be lured into the wickedness of the tongues around us. And this is what we see in Psalm 12 as a note of introduction. It is written for the choir director upon an eight-string lyre. It's a psalm of David. And so we know it's a psalm of David. We don't know exactly when it was written nor the circumstances surrounding this psalm. We can consider some possibilities, but we don't know for sure. So what we do know is found within the context of this psalm itself. And what we do know is that this psalm was meant to lead people in worship. And so let's look at Psalm 12, beginning with the urgent cry for help from false tongues. And we begin with this urgent cry in verse 1. We read, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of of men. The psalmist simply says, help. This word help is an urgent cry to deliver, to set free, to liberate. It's a cry of desperation. We're not talking about my eight-year-old who's asking for help on his math homework. I'm having a bad day and I just need a little help. That's not the help we're talking about. This is, this is someone who is in the bottom of a pit with no way to get himself out. He is completely desperate. He is completely helpless. He is on even on the brink of death. And he has only one word to say. Help. This is the severity of the issue that's at hand that is surrounding David. And this is not a help to whomever will listen. It is a help directed specifically to the Lord. It's help, Lord. And in distressing times, David shows us there is only one place to turn for help. That is to the Lord, to the Almighty, to the All-Sovereign, All-Powerful, Faithful, Perfect, Loving Ruler of the Universe. And brothers and sisters, if there is only one thing to take away from Psalm 12 this morning, if, if there was only one thing... And if that thing is to call out to the Lord for help in our time of need, then praise God. Because that is how we worship him. And that's what this psalm shows us. And so many of the psalms, that's what they show us. We worship him by crying out to him when we have need. And why? What is the the reason for David's cry? He says, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. David is crying out because the godly man ceases to exist. The faithful have disappeared. The godly man and the faithful refers to the nation of Israel. We're talking about God's children here. If it, if it were the wicked nations, that would be one thing. You, you would expect wicked tongues. You would expect a turning away from God from the nations. But that's not what's going on here. This is the fold of Israel. These are the children of promise. And, uh, and we have a description 
here. Two descriptions, godly man and, and the faithful. A godly man is, is the one who is devoted to God, loyal and faithful. He shows a kindness and uprightness of character that is reflective of their position as children of God. That's the godly man. And the faithful are those who are known to be reliable and trustworthy, who can be trusted in what they say or do. Oh, what a description. This is how a child of God ought to be described. But this is not what David sees in the people around him. What he sees is that the godly man ceases to exist. And the faithful have altogether disappeared. They've vanished. And the word cease here in the Hebrew and the preterite reflects to the sad reality of the people. Not just the beginning of a problem. And this is important to understand if we are going to properly apply this psalm here. The problem is not merely a concern. The problem isn't merely even just kind of beginning to happen. This problem is a sad reality. This is how the people are characterized. They're characterized as ceasing to exist. And we'll look more at why that is and how that is evidenced. But instead of being surrounded by a community of men and women whose actions and words are considered to be in line with the character of God, David is surrounded by a community who bears the name as God's promised children, but whose tongues, as we'll see, are destroying the truly faithful children of God. And the extent of this wickedness among the quote-unquote children of God is significant. It drives David to cry for help as one who would desire deliverance from even death itself. It's a sad and fearful state to think that some can bear the name as God's children and yet be characterized as ceasing to exist, as having vanished from the fold of God as evidenced by their love for sin and by their love for having, as we'll see, wicked tongues. This is the urgent cry that we see here. And in verse 2, we have the urgent problem. It's described here. In verse 2, we read, They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart, they speak They speak falseness. They speak vain, empty words. Words that are intended to manipulate the hearer. And and notice this. They speak falsehood to one another. These false words are directed towards one another. Indicating gossip. Indicating slander. They don't speak to build others up. They speak destructive words to tear people down. And they spread these words to one another. Early 19th century theologian by the name of W.S. Plummer. He's does a great big work on the book of Psalms, a wonderful work. And he, he simply says this about, um, about the issue of gossip and slander here. He says, <clears throat> Unchecked depravity manifests itself with great uniformity. In other words, people flock to a wicked tongue that is not held accountable to God and not accountable to his people. You've heard it said in a popular baseball movie, if you build it, they will come. And you could very well say, if you gossip, they will come. 
And this is the problem before David's eyes. People who are supposed to be godly and yet spreading vain, manipulative, false words to one another. And so there's, there's gossip and slander here. But there's also a flattering lips. And there's a double heart going on. Flattering lips means false speech, dishonest speech. This is smooth, slippery speech for ungodly or for wicked ends. And a double heart is literally, in the Hebrew, it's, it's with a heart and a heart, indicating duplicity. Thinking one thing and speaking another. Saying one thing to one person and saying another thing to another person. Spurgeon says this about flattering lips and a double heart in only the way Spurgeon can say. He who puffs up another's heart has nothing better than wind in his own. If a man extols me to my face, he only shows me one side of his heart and the other is black with contempt for me or foul with intent to cheat me. Flattery is the sign of the tavern where duplicity is the host. Flattery and double-heartedness is an attempt to manipulate someone with words for personal gain or even to destroy that person rather than to communicate with honesty and integrity for redemptive purposes as God has called us as his children to do. And, And this deceit is a great evil. This is a great danger with destructive ends. And as a result, David, please to cut off the wicked. This is the urgent plea, as you'll see in your notes, in verses 3 to 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? This situation is so grievous, so severe, that David calls upon the Lord to cut off these flattering, arrogant boasters who say whatever they want to whomever they want, being held accountable to no one. And in the boasting of their tongues, they make three claims that we've just read. Number one, with our tongues, we will prevail. Number two, our lips are our own. And number three, who is Lord over us? They believe they will succeed in their ungodly schemes through the wicked use of their tongues. That they will prevail in destroying others. They believe they are the masters of their tongues. They are accountable to no one. And as we see here, there is, there's no fear of God in their speech. And practically speaking, they act as if God is not the sovereign ruler and Lord over their lives or over their tongues. And this type of blatant falsehood and deception joined together with with zero accountability to God and to one another. Get this. It is the fuel for great and limitless destruction in the lives of others. And David pleads with the Lord to cut off those who flatter and who boast with their tongues with no fear of God. Though this warning is given in the context of of the unfaithful of Israel, I think there's a grave warning here to be heeded by the church today. I'm afraid that, that we profess to fear God above all, and yet, at times, we speak with one another 
And we speak about one another as if God does not exist. As if God does not hear our every word. As if God is not truly sovereign Lord and ruler over our tongues. And you would expect this from the world, but the reality is that this problem is present in our church today. People, even in the church, believe that they have the right to talk about whatever they want, whenever they want, and to whomever they want, with very little concern for those who are being destroyed by their words. And certainly this has been exasperated by social media in our culture today, which, is, which so often, frankly, can just be a cesspool of gossip and slander. And in James chapter 3, verse 10, James says, My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. It should not have been that way for for God's people then, and it should not be this way today. And David calls upon the Lord to end the wickedness and destruction all around him. And the Lord hears David's cry for help. He hears the cry not only of David, but as we'll see, all those who have also been attacked and oppressed. And God brings them into the safety they so desperately long for. That is our Second point this morning in your notes is, is the safety of God's afflicted from false tongues. Verse 5, we read, Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. And so first we have the reason for God's response. Number one, because of the devastation of the afflicted. Number two, because of the groaning of the needy. And God hears their cry for help. The devastation of the afflicted gives the sense that the wicked are actively harming the poor and needy through their devouring tongues. And all the needy can do in response to this suffering is to groan. They are powerless to pull themselves out of this devastating situation. Brothers and sisters, don't underestimate the power of the tongue. It can be, as James 3, 8 says, a restless evil and full of deadly poison that causes great destruction in the lives of so many. John Calvin said this, he said, Certainly falsehood and calumnies, that is, slanders, are more deadly than swords and all other kinds of weapons. Spurgeon said, a man better be among lions than among liars. And David himself cries out in Psalm 57, verse 4, My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. The destructive nature of slanderous, gossiping tongues cannot be overstated. It is a great wickedness that leads to despair. It leads to grief. It leads to vulnerability. It leads to loneliness. It leads to distrust of those who seem closest to you. It leads to fear, not knowing what someone might say about you. And for some, death itself 
seems to be the only way out. This is the fruit of gossip and slander for those who are on the receiving end. And brothers and sisters, this morning, even the slightest hint of gossip produces sorrow and isolation among one another. And and this is especially poignant when it happens among the people of God. When trust is broken, it's like a soldier on the battlefield who is deliberately shot in the leg by one of his fellow comrades. He expects to get shot by, by enemy forces, but he doesn't expect to get shot at by one of his own. It is not just the physical harm that befalls the soldier. There's an even greater emotional harm, a grieving and groaning that comes from the betrayal of a fellow comrade. As James said, my brothers, these things ought not to be this way. And in Psalm 12, it was one thing for David and faithful Israel to suffer from the verbal attacks of the nations, which we often see in the Old Testament, but it was quite another for the faithful believers to suffer severe verbal attacks from within the fold of Israel. And God does not sit idly by while his children suffer with deep groans and longing for deliverance. Because God will judge the ungodly and he will set his children in safety. And in, in, in moving on, secondly here in our notes, we have the determination of God to respond. In verse 5, he simply says, Now I will arise. Here we have the turning point of God's divine intervention. He will wait no longer. Here we have a sobering reality of a loving, powerful father who will not sit back and watch his beloved children helplessly receive attack after attack. And unless the wicked turn from their ways, and brothers and sisters, that's our desire, is that those who would be characterized as such would turn from their ways. But unless they do, they will face the fierce anger and wrath of God. Again, Spurgeon, in only his way, says this. Nothing moves a father like the cries of his children. He bestirs himself, wakes up his manhood, overthrows the enemy, and sets his beloved in safety. A puff is too much for the child to bear. And the foe is haughty, that he laughs the little one to scorn. But the father comes, and then it is the child's turn to laugh when he is set above the rage of his tormentor. This is a sobering reality for the wicked who continue in their ways of seeking to destroy with their words. And as believers, there's comfort that knowing that there will be an end to the suffering. As believers, there's comfort knowing that God will arise and make all things right. God will bring an end to all of the sin and wickedness around us. And, and this is how we worship in this world. It is to know that God one day will bring all sin and wickedness to an end. That is what is to come. And, and therefore, We are not to be overcome by evil. It is for God to judge. That is, it's not our role. That's not what he's called us to. That is his alone. And so we're not to be overcome by evil, but we are to overcome evil with good, as Romans chapter 12 
21 instructs us. Third, we have the safety of God's afflicted. As we see in the end of verse 5, God will not only arise and bring an end to the devouring tongue, he will set his afflicted child in the safety for which he longs. This phrase, for which he longs, is more literally, for which he, pr- for which he pants or breathes out. It is a panting for safety. And one of the most pressing longings of a believer who is victim to gossip and slander is to know that they are safe from the storm. When my four-year-old boy cries out for me at night, scared of some lurking shadow, it's not enough to know that I'm down the hallway. He needs, to be, he needs me to be in his room because he believes that when I'm in his room, he is safe. And it's at that point that, that he can close his eyes again and sleep in peace. He needs to know that I am present and that I am powerful enough to defeat that lurking shadow that's in the hallway. But it's then that I provide the safety for which he longs. And when children, when God's children are afflicted and cry out for help, God provides the safety they so deeply long for. He's the only one we can turn to in our times of trouble. Whether this times like these or or, or any times of trouble that we find ourselves in. That amidst the despair, God alone gives hope. Amidst the grief, God alone gives joy. Amidst the vulnerability, God alone gives security. Amidst loneliness and distrust, God alone is a trustworthy companion. Amidst fear, God alone provides comfort. And amidst death itself, God alone promises life. And this hope, joy, security, trustworthy companionship, comfort, and life can only come from God. He is the only one who can provide the safety we so desperately long for amidst suffering. And this is what God promises to his beloved children. Brothers and sisters, two of the most pressing questions of someone who is attacked is, number one, will it end? And number two, will I be safe? And in his response to David's plea for help, God answers, yes, It will end. And yes, I will keep you safe. And now in verse 6, the tone changes and a contrast is being made. This is your third main point, that the purity of God's words is set against false tongues. Verse 6, the words of the Lord... Now, now there's a change here. The word, we saw, so often see this as a side note. We, we so often see this in Psalms. We see contrast being made. We see antithetical parallelisms that you have parallel thoughts but contrasting thoughts and it brings starkness to, to what it is that God is showing us and teaching us. And in verse 6, we see the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times It's as as if you see the sun shining out of the darkness here at this point in the psalm. The problem was described. The cry for help was made. 
God answers with his power and with his promises. And now we have a vision for the purity of God's words. Whereas false tongues are untrustworthy, unreliable, and destructive, God's words are trustworthy, reliable, and life-giving. And so as we look at the purity of God's words, W.S. Plummer describes them as pure from all error, all mistake, all equivocation, all deception, all encouragement to sin, all weakness. They, God's words, are more replete with meaning, with faithfulness, with grace, than the best minds and the strongest faith have ever conceived or alleged. There is something amazing in the power of God's word. And it's compared to silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. In this time, silver would undergo an oxidation process with lead, would be heated to temperatures of of over 1,600 degrees in these kind of cup-type things in the earth. And, And this process would remove the dross, leaving pure, unalloyed silver. And in Jewish literature, seven is the number of completeness and perfection. And so this, this brings color and vividness to God's word as perfectly, completely pure, pure, as that which cannot be added to or taken away from. You cannot make God's words more perfect than they already are. And these infinitely perfect words reflect God's infinitely perfect character and divine purposes. And so in a, in a world filled with deception, it is, it is critical to know that God's words are trustworthy and reliable, and they serve as a standard for our words as God's people, as believers. David does not set men's words as his standard, even the words of good, godly men, because what makes a good, godly man is one who seeks to conform his words to God's words. The the integrity and holiness of our communication should conform more and more to the integrity and holiness of God's communication. And this requires submitting to the authority of God's words through his grace and by his power. Because we're not prone to pursue that. We can't conform ourselves. We need him to do that. And he's called us to put ourselves under the authority and the purity of his word. We see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And in verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Brothers and sisters, your words matter. You can speak blessing or cursing. You can build up or tear down. You can break or you can heal. 
You can be instruments of righteousness or instruments of evil. And brothers, sisters, the road your tongue ought to take has been clearly paved by the word of God. It may God in his grace bring our words into conformity with his words. Speaking truth with one another. Speaking that which is, is good for the edification of one another. May our prayer be as David prayed in Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and redeemer. May this be the case for us here at Reverence Bible Church. May this be what marks us as a body of believers here at Reverence. That we would be marked as a people whose words are filled with grace. Whose words are filled with the building up of one another for redemptive purposes. Our tongues are a gift from God to be used for his glory. What a blessed privilege we have to use our tongues that are so often used for evil and for wickedness. He's given us our tongues as a gift as believers. Amen? Yeah. May we use them for his glory. Lastly, in verses 7 to 8, we have the eternal security of God's people amidst false tongues. In verse 7, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. See, in verse 1, again, we have a contrast here. In verse 1, David denounces that the godly man ceases to be and that the faithful have disappeared. But here in verse 7, we see that, that this is not the case for the true children of God. God's children can be sure that they will be kept. God's children can know That they will be preserved from this generation. Meaning from those who deceive and destroyed with their words. This is not generation as as a people in general. But just specifically from those who would destroy. You see the influence of falsehood, gossip, and slander. It is pervasive. It is ravenous. But it is also enticing. Especially when suffering and persecution exist. When the temptation is to flee from God's promises that are unseen in order to temporarily prosper or to be accepted by those who we do see. And even God's children can be influenced and baited in by false tongues. Consider the gravity of this sin. It it is fearful to think that we as believers could get drawn into this. But also consider that God promises to preserve you from this generation forever. This This is a great promise for believers to rest in. For the godly who are in Christ, there is both safety from the onslaught of destructive tongues 
and eternal security from the enticement of gossip and slander. We will not cease to exist as the godly. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And verse 7 is held in direct contrast to the wicked in verse 8, who strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. The wicked find comfort and strength by surrounding themselves with those who speak falseness. When, when, when this vileness is exalted among those around them, and this vileness is described as a, as a shameful worthlessness. This is what characterized the generation of that time. And, and why don't the wicked change their ways? Because they are surrounded by people who feed into their egos. And so they continue in these sinful ways with no fear of God. They may prosper temporarily, but if they remain in this sinful state, they will be cut off from God and from his people for all eternity. The godly, however, can be sure that God will keep them safe from attacks and eternally secure from the enticement of Satan's schemes. Brothers and sisters, let us take comfort in the great promises of God found in Psalm 12, especially as new covenant believers who are eternally sealed with the Spirit through Christ, our Lord and Savior. I would like to finish, conclude this morning with uh, seven brief points of application. And uh, this was helpful for me. I hope it might be helpful for you. There should be an insert in your bulletin um, that you can read along with because there are seven points and um, hopefully that will be helpful for you to retain and perhaps reflect on um, at some other point. So how... When we look at Psalm 12, how might we apply these words today? Number one, a false tongue characterized by flattery, gossip, and slander is a wicked evil that Satan uses to adversely influence God's people and even to lead them astray. See it for the danger it is and flee from it. Number two, the man or woman who is characterized by a false and boastful tongue practically rejects the sovereign rule of God in their lives. It is also a great evil that causes devastation and groaning in the lives of God's children as they are left vulnerable to attacks from those they once trusted. This passage gives severe warning. And as believers, consider your speech and how it reflects a fear of God and a love for his people. And number three, when attacked, trust that God will judge those who are set against him. It's his to judge. As evidenced by their words, a day will come when the wickedness of this world will be brought to an end. Therefore, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Number four, when attacked, trust God's promise to keep you safe from the destruction of false tongues. This is the longing of a believer when attacked by the, by the tongue. 
Believers are and will forever be safe in Christ. Number five, worship God by setting his words as your standard for pure speech. Do not compare your words to others, but by the Spirit, and I want to undergird that, by the Spirit, by the grace of God at work in your life, seek to conform your words to God's word for the building up of one another. Number six, Worship God by entrusting your eternal care into his hands. God preserves those who are his. The dangerous influence of the false and boastful tongue will not prevail over you and drag you into its vices. Christ purchased you by his blood on the cross and he will lose none of those whom the Father has given him. And number seven, in view of your eternal security, Worship God by not envying the false security of those who cause destruction with their words. Pray for those who are blind to their destructive words, that they may turn from their sin and submit to Christ and the authority of his word as James finished in his book, chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, by the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and from a multitude of sins. That is the privilege we have as instruments of reconciliation, as ambassadors of Christ that Christ may turn hearts to him. I hope that this psalm, Psalm chapter 12, serves as an encouragement to you this morning, as an encouragement to rest in the safety and in the eternal security of God. And I hope it also encourages you to use your tongue for gracious, redemptive purposes in the lives of those around you as I shared. The tongue is a wonderful gift of God. May we use it here at our church for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, we we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is life-giving that it instructs us, that it comforts us, but also that it corrects us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would bear your word upon our hearts as we need. And you know perfectly well exactly what it is that we need and how to apply your truth to our hearts. And may we, Lord, as a church, magnify your name with our words. Help us today to conform our words to your words. Help us to be a people whose words are filled with grace, love, and edification towards one another.
We need you this morning to do that supernatural work in our lives and we call upon you to do so with thanksgiving in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.